It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast. Steve and Jerry with you. Jerry, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Steve. You're welcome. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast, Instagram the Rushcast. Email Jerry at the Rushcast at gmail.com. The emails keep pouring in. We keep appreciating it every time a new email pours in. Yes. So keep sending them. We like to read them. The base intro today, as always, done by Lex. He's the best. So today, Jer, on the Rush Fancast, we thought it would be cool to talk to a philosopher. Yeah. What do you think? I've been, we had a list of topics that we might want to do Mm -hmm. over the course of this. And at the top of the list for me was a philosopher, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Rush, philosophy. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yep. So today we decided to uh, get a philosopher to talk with us about Rush. An honest to goodness. An honest to goodness philosopher. (laughs) And we've got one on the line with us right now, Liz Swan. She is a writer and philosopher and a lecturer who teaches writing at the University of Colorado Boulder. Liz, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Why don't you start by telling us your Rush discovery story? How did you discover Rush? When was that? And what did you feel first time you heard Rush? That is a good question. And what's weird is it's so long ago, because it was 1989, And I was 15 years old, and I still remember it like it was a couple weeks ago, honestly. Um, I grew up in Connecticut, and my dad's cousin owned a cabin in the ski resort area in the Catskills in New York. And we went up to stay with our cousins for a week. And at the time, I was listening to a lot of U2. I loved, like, old U2 and... Led Zeppelin and even like um, Guns N' Roses were big at that time. And uh, that was kind of like the extent of my uh, music. And I remember going into my cousin's bedroom and she had a boom box, right? Very 1980s boom box. And she had a bunch of tapes there. And one of them was Rush, uh, Exit Stage Left. Oh, and I wow. said, who's Rush? <laughs> and she said, you don't know Rush? And I was like, I don't. I'd never heard of them. Um, the, the year prior, we had lived out of the country, and maybe I was just, I don't know. And I said, no, I've never heard of them. So I popped in exit stage left, and I heard uh, Spirit of Radio, and it literally blew my mind. And my first thought was like, why didn't I know about these guys? Like, I felt cheated. Like, <laughs> what, how did I make it to 15 years old, and I did not know about these guys? So I listened to the album. I was totally hooked and went home to Connecticut and started collecting all their albums. Wow. It's funny because a lot of people exit stage left is their introduction to Rush. Yeah, I know. Have you heard that? I mean, I I hear a lot of stories like that. It kind of was ours too, because even though we saw the first time we saw them on the Power Windows tour, we listened to exit stage left to and from the show. Yeah. So- and oh, it's just just an amazing record. So what was the first Rush album you went out and bought after hearing that? What was uh, your I next wish I move? Could, well, okay, so I know I definitely came home and bought Exit Stage Left. That was my first one. Because I didn't know, you know, how many more albums these, these people had and who were these guys. You know, I was just so, like, it was just a whole new universe for me. It was a whole new world that I had to explore. And I was, um, I guess and still am, I am a little bit, I think a lot of Rush fans are actually somewhat 
OCD, you know, like you find something <laughs> that you love and you have to do it like 200%. So I was kind of like that. I know I started with exit stage left. Um, and then quickly it was like caress of steel hemispheres a farewell to Kings, like all the old ones. I just was like eating them up. You know, I just couldn't wait to like go to our mall <laughs> and spend my babysitting money. Sam Goody. Did you go to Sam Goody? Uh, yeah, Sam Goody. <laughs> yep. The Stanford town center. Um, we had Sam Goody or, uh, I can't remember what ours was. Maybe we did have a Sam Goody and we had a cool, um, tape store cassette store in town um called johnny's and yeah i would just be like all right what what can i i don't even remember how much tapes were then like ten dollars i guess and i couldn't wait to buy the next one and just like eat it up so you said this was 1989 so did you grab power windows hold your fire presto those albums too or was it mostly just the old stuff for some reason i i bought the 70s ones first i definitely know that because it took me a long time. I think it was my senior year um, of high school. So I'd be two years later, 1991, when I bought um, Roll the Bones, I guess it was. Um, but I definitely was, and I, and I still am. Okay, I still am totally married to 70s music. I think that's by far the best decade for music, in my opinion. So I think I gravitated towards, I want to see what else they're doing as far as um, of course, fly by night and um, and hemispheres. And but, yeah, I do remember buying some of the later ones, the 80s ones more later in high school. And what and what about seeing Rush live? What was your first show? How was that experience for you? My first show, I guess, was Roll the Bones because it was 1991. I was in college at that point and a good friend of mine lived right outside of Philly. So I don't know if they were at the Spectrum, if that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's what it would be, sure. Yeah, okay. So that was my first show, um, and that was amazing and um, just, you know, blew my mind. I mean, Rush Studio, I can listen to their studio albums interminably. I mean, I just love their studio music, but it was just fun maybe to see them in person, you know, see them up on the stage and see them live. And regrettably, I didn't see them live as many times as I should have or could have. And I regret that now. But yeah, that was my first show, 1991, I believe. Now, Liz, um, the first I came across your article in Psychology Today about the passing of Neil. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you wrote that? Yeah. So I, like everybody, was totally shocked by that news. Um, completely shocked. My husband sent me a text message. I think I was at the gym or something. And you know, he's like, sorry, but I think Neil Peart died. And I was like, what? Obviously he's wrong. You know, like, I don't know what he's talking about. And um, I was super, super shocked. I think for a few days, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't understand it. I didn't know what, how this could have happened. It was just weird. And then I thought, um, just this need to sort of write something about it because I'm a writer and also rush, you know, uh, reach out to other rush fans and be like, this is so bad for all of us. This is just, you know, especially because we didn't know it was like a shock and it was sad news. And I just felt compelled to write um, something about it. And the first version of that article was super short. It was just like, wow, I can't believe this happened. Um, 
everybody's hurting about this and what an amazing person he was. And the editor was like, you know, your posts have got to be longer than that. I wanted it to be just like short and sweet. I just wanted it to be like a little short eulogy. You know, I'm not a, sco- a rush scholar by any means. I just wanted to like put it out there. And she said, well, you, you, you need more content. And so um, then I tied in the whole hemispheres thing and other other things I've written about Rush. And, um, you know, he, he, I feel like Neil was such an amazing and deep thinker and a lot of stuff that I would learn about in psychology or philosophy would remind me of Rush lyrics. And I'm like, how did Neil know all this stuff? You know, like, how is he thinking about all this stuff and making all these connections, not being um, a card carrying philosopher, if you will. And, um, I just wanted to put something out there to connect with other Rush fans. And it it worked. And one thing I'll say about that little Psychology Today article is that very few people commented on the site. Um, but many, many, many people emailed me behind the scenes where you, you can email me directly without putting a comment like on the Internet for everybody to see. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because that, that also is very... Uh, much like a Rush fan. You know, many of us are very like <laughs> cerebral and introverted. And so they didn't want to like post a comment for everybody to see. But many, many, many people emailed me and said how they were touched by what I wrote and it meant something to them. And, you know, it was all just a great loss that we were feeling together. Absolutely. You know, we find the same thing, you know, from this podcast. We get a lot of emails from Rush fans, lengthy emails. Yeah, lengthy. And they, you know, a couple pages just thanking us wow. for, for what we're doing here. And wow. they won't comment necessarily on our posts and stuff, but we'll, we'll get the emails and they're, and they're, they're saddened by, by Neil not being with us anymore. It's just it's terrible. It's a huge loss for sure. So how did uh, your participation in the Rush and Philosophy book come about, Liz? Yeah, that was really cool. How did that come about? I wanted to do, so I, I had, that's a whole series, Pop Culture and Philosophy, those books. Um, and I had done like Transformers. I wrote an essay about Black Sabbath. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah, there's another book, Black Sabbath and Philosophy, who's, they're definitely my top five bands of all time. And um, then there's one, Devil and Philosophy, and I wrote <laughs> about that kind of stuff. So uh, I actually wanted to do Russian philosophy, and I didn't uh, jump on it quickly enough. And then, um, all of us who write kind of in that genre get these mass emails. And I was like, oh, man, somebody beat me to it. <laughs> but uh, the two guys who edited that book um, were both huge, super duper Rush fans. And one of them teaches music at a university. And I thought that's really you know appropriate that they would take on this project. Um, and I sent them my proposal and it got accepted and I was really happy to see I was not the only woman who authored an essay for that collection. I think there were at least three or four um, women authors because that's kind of an interesting uh, stereotype that women don't listen to Rush or don't like Rush. And it's certainly of course not true. Um, But yeah, I just proposed um, hemispheres at the time. Hemispheres I think has always been the most important album to me and um i thought easily i'm going to be able to eke out some philosophy from that uh from that album yeah you know in your uh psychology today article i'm going to quote you back to you if that's okay you wrote uh blending philosophy poetry and fantasy like a wizard pierce 
words both guided me into academic philosophy and helped me recover from it and find a truer path. So yeah. I guess there's two parts to that. How did he, how did he, you know, guide you into it and how did he help you recover from it? I'm not even yeah. sure what that means, but. Yeah, I'm not really sure that I know. What am I talking about? <laughs> I think what <laughs> I think what I meant was um, I have an image of myself my senior year in high school, um, sitting at a table in the cafeteria, and it was time for us to choose our senior yearbook quotations. And I had a notebook, and I had pages and pages of quotations to choose from. They were all from Rush, wow. <laughs> and it was just which one do I choose? And I remember reading them to my friend Dave. Should I do this one? Should I do that one? And just a lot of the images in Neil's lyrics are um, sort of otherworldly. You know, they bring up um, the idea of life in the future, 2112, or life in other galaxies, um, or, you know, supernatural stuff, gods and goddesses in, in Mount Olympus. And so the, the lyrics definitely opened up my mind to thinking about um, other realms, other possibilities, what is the nature of life on this planet vis-a-vis -vis other planets. And um, I've always been interested in science fiction and fantasy and all that stuff. And those, his lyrics kind of, you know, lend themselves to all those ideas. And so I think, um, A, that's how I started thinking more philosophically. It, it sort of opened my mind to bigger ideas. Um, and then B, getting out of philosophy, um, you know, practicing philosophy as a card-carrying philosopher is very different than I would have expected, than maybe most people would expect. It's, um, it's so fun to learn philosophy in college and graduate school. It's not a lot of fun to be a philosopher. People, <laughs> the application people get of very, it? Yeah, people get very... Um, there's a lot of ego and people get critical and mean and competitive. And I just thought, ugh, I don't want to do this anymore. And I would say the, the one word that comes to mind for me with Neil Peart is integrity. That word integrity is in his lyrics so many times, right? So mm -hmm. many different songs. He writes about integrity, which I think is something along the lines of, you know, being true to yourself um, doing the right thing, even when no one's looking, all those sorts of things. And so it was very hard for me to quit a tenure track job in philosophy. They're so hard to come by, but I thought, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I need to do something else. And I think that that does take integrity. It's hard to do, um, you know, when you've worked so hard for it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I just think he's a good model of, you know, don't buy into other people's BS, you know, be yourself, even if it's difficult, be yourself. And, you know, I think he's a really, he's inspiring in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. So Liz, you, you describe in the book how, how Neil taps into a crucial insight of philosophy in the song Cygnus X1, book two, Hemispheres. Can you explain how that is? Yes, yes. So this so that the question the so-called hard problem in contemporary analytic philosophy has always bothered me because it it seems very misguided and very um confused and the question is just we live in a physical universe right things are um mechanistic and we're made of atoms and we're made of solids and gases and liquids it's a physical universe so why do we have 
experience? Why do we experience the world qualitatively? Um, why aren't we just sort of robots, you know, going about our <laughs> business, doing our stuff and, and thinking and calculating? And why do we have experience in the first place? Um, and philosophers make a big deal about this. And what I tried to explain in that the essay that I wrote in that book is just, well, that's sort of a misguided question, right? We know as humans that we do experience the world qualitatively. We do see colors and feel feelings and, um, you know, touch things that have different textures and, and whatnot. And that guides our decisions on a moment to moment basis. So it's a misguided question to say, well, how can it be that we have, that we experience the world qualitatively instead ask, um, well, there is this physical universe and we do experience things qualitatively. So do animals, so do other non-human animals. And how is that the case? And so you need to somehow figure out how experience fits into the physical universe. And um, I guess reflecting on so many hours of listening to hemispheres in high school, I thought that's kind of what the story of hemispheres is about. There's, there, you know, these people who, these lost people who are, should we be guided by intellect or should we be guided by love and emotion? Well, no, neither one is um, adequate on its own. It has to be um, combined. It has to be synthesized, you know, love and reason, thinking and feeling. And I thought that that's where I was like, God, who is this? person <laughs> yeah, Neil really. and like, where's where is he getting this wisdom where he's answering these philosophical problems and there are like hundreds of papers published about the hard problem and i just feel like saying you know what like put down your philosophy book listen to some rush <laughs> <laughs> like, it's that like you people have already figured it out for you you know yeah it's sort of like um the lyric you know why are we here because we're here yeah it's kind of it's a question that answers itself Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a misguided question and case in point, um, this is how frustrating, you know, working in philosophy is when I wrote that essay and I was kind of like, damn, yeah, this is good. Like I, <laughs> I showed how, like how to apply rush to a philosophical problem. Like this is good. And I sent it to the philosopher who's known for the hard problem. And, um, he wrote back something like, um, nice essay. I don't know Rush. Oh, I was I was yeah. hoping you were going to say, he said, yeah, I'm a big Rush fan too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, if he was, he never would have come up with a dumb art problem in the first place. He, he was oh, kind of nice. Is, and, throwing shade <laughs> see, against. I told you philosophy gets nasty. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, he was just sort of like, yeah, uh, nice essay, you know, and it's just, it's frustrating because, you know, I don't know, I guess philosophers can get very insular. And if you just kind of look, outside into the wider world sometimes there are answers there that are pretty obvious <laughs> so what else about hemispheres liz what else about hemispheres the song i was going to ask you mm -hmm. about apollo versus dionysus i love love that story it's a great story it's um you know Such he changes the the typical definitions of both apollo and dionysus a little bit for the story in order to um really drive home the point of you know, what human nature is all about. That's yeah. how I think of it. I don't know. Does it? How so? Um, well, I think that, you know, human nature is kind of looking for the single answer. We're looking for, you know, mm. well, maybe it's this way. And then you go all in on that. And then you're like, well, that didn't work. 
what about this other way? And then you go all in on that and like, oh boy, that didn't work either. So somewhere in the middle is, you know, how things are going to work out. I think that's what Hemispheres does perfectly. Yeah, I think, I think so too. And that's why I love the resolution at the end where it's, he's the God of balance and <clears throat> balance for me, maybe like integrity is for Neil balance is huge for me. That's a very big, um, I guess, philosophical concept for me. And I love that. That's the, the synthesis is balance in so much of modern philosophy, going back to Descartes, where he talks about, you know, there's res cogitans, thinking stuff, and res extensa, extended stuff. So there's like stuff in the world, like trees and cars, and then there's thinking stuff, like spirits and whatnot. And he started this philosophy on this whole path of dualism. And um, I think a lot of philosophy is just trying to bridge that gap and bring everything back together because it's not the natural world and supernatural stuff. It's, you know, it's just the natural world and we experience some weird things, but we've got to fit it into, you know, where does it, how does it come from the brain and the physical world? Because I believe at least that's, that's all there is. And you got to bring that stuff, bring those sort of two worlds back together. And I think that's what hemispheres is all about and there's also this interesting granularity where i think the lyrics are talking about not only individuals being split like hemispheres of the brain but also hemispheres of reality you know there's we can live this way or we can live that way in this division um that has to be this this gap that has to be bridged and brought together and it's just an amazing story of balance it really is would you be able to characterize rush's overall philosophy because i have an idea of what they're all about but is from in your mind is there a kind of philosophy at work i don't know if there is or not um personally because somebody asked me that in the comments of the tribute that i wrote um for neil and somebody said what what kind of philosophy do you mean and I don't think um, th there's any like existentialism or, you know, um, dualism or anything like that that they would ascribe to. Because I, I don't think that they would be interested. You know, I don't think they could care less like what's going on in academic philosophy per se. But um, I was able to come up with a couple of thoughts about Neil himself. And I think um, probably the strongest one is integrity. I feel like he, as a man, as a person, he had his own philosophy for himself. And he was very true to that way of living. Um, but as far as like an overall philosophy for the band, I haven't been able to come up with one. I'd be curious to hear what you came up with. Well, I just think it's uh, just given their, um, you know, just their career. I don't really know much about them as, as people, but their career is based on not giving in to the status quo. They are mm. definitely going to do what they want to do. Because we were talking about um, A Farewell to Kings and how the beginning of A Farewell to Kings is a complete, you know, left turn from 2112. Mm -hmm. And then you go to Hemispheres, another turn. And then all throughout their career, they're just, they're just following, I guess, their muse. And they're not really paying any attention to what other people think they should be doing. And so in that case... You know, that's I, that's their integrity for me, 
is that yes. they're just going to, as a band, be do what they want to do and follow whatever, you know, creative paths that they see before them. Oh, yeah. I would definitely agree with that. And it was in one of the documentaries about them where they were being interviewed about um, the early days of, you, you know, when they almost lost their record deal and they weren't getting radio play. And I think one of their producers said something along the lines of, um, we want you to come up with shorter, more catchy kind of radio <laughs> tunes, like <laughs> pop tunes. Yep. And then they come out with By Tour and the Snow Dog. <laughs> and it's just like, what the hell? You know, what are we supposed to do with you guys? Right. And that's one of my all-time favorite songs of Rush. I mean, I just love that song. And it's a great story. It's great musically. And I just love that they were like, no, we're not going to do the four-minute Led Zeppelin sing-along kind of pop tunes. We're not going to do that. We're going to do our own thing. And I feel like it took a long time for them, but it worked out in the end. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So Liz, why do you feel that Rush fans, I guess the question is, why do you and I and Jerry have this connection with Rush and others don't? What is it about Rush that gives us that, that feeling? I'm so glad you asked that. So this is another direction we can take philosophy, which is pretty deep and it's pretty weird. But All right, one, let's go. I'm um, in for it. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> you ready for yeah, it? Yeah, I'm perking up now. Um, <laughs> a paper that I published um, a couple of years ago called Deep, Nat- Deep Naturalism um, in a Psychology and Brain Journal um, we tried to get at, and I was looking at Jackson Pollock's drip paintings that that was my muse and not rush's music but um i tried to get at this idea of there are certain patterns in nature and there are certain patterns in our brain and sometimes there is a um, synchronicity where something matches up so when it has been scientifically proven that when people are looking at jackson pollock's drip paintings the drip paintings have a certain fractal pattern, a self-repeating fractal pattern. And when people look at them, it induces a sense of calm, just as if you were looking at um, waves coming onto the shore, that repetitive pattern of waves hitting the shore or clouds blowing by. All these repetitive patterns in nature, for whatever reason, have a calming effect on us and on our brain. And somehow Jackson Pollock was um, painting in those patterns unknowingly because he's painting before fractals are even um, articulated or discovered. So that's totally wacky. And um, in the paper, I talk about how, you know, language is patterns, mathematics is patterns and music is patterns. And I would, I would say, because I think Rush fans are such a unique subset of the population because um, like they say in one of those documentaries, people don't just sort of like Rush, right? If you like Rush, you're like bananas about Rush, right? Right. And we know that. And I feel like that's very true. And so I do feel like there is something in Neil Peart's lyrics, which are kind of otherworldly, and they, they sort of reach like another realm, another aspect of being, and their music that our brains are for whatever reason, are sort of wired up to, that's it. Like, that is our cocaine. That yeah. is our, we just, our our brains are set up to understand those lyrics and resonate with that music 
like completely and wholly more so than other types of music. But why do some people react positively to those lyrical and musical patterns, but others, they don't get it? I think because they're just not wired up that way. I mean, I've had so many friends who are musicians who do not appreciate Rush. I mean, even musicians and a good friend of mine who plays guitar and I would have him listen to Discovery on 2112 when the, the guy discovers a guitar and I was like, what is this? I mean, it's so amazing. If you play guitar, how could you not think that's amazing? Yeah. And he never gave it any credence, you know, Rush just, he just doesn't get it, doesn't like them. Um, and he loves Bob Dylan. I love Bob Dylan too, <laughs> but I think you're just kind of, you're, you're either for whatever reason, right? We don't know how our brains get wired up different ways to like this kind of pizza and not that kind of pizza. Mm. It's so, so many series of millions and millions of accidents along the way in your life that make your brain be exactly the way it is. <laughs> but some people's brains are wired up that way and some are not. I, I don't, I wish I knew why I really do. Yeah, when it comes to uh, Pollock's paintings, is it sort of like a mimic of brainwaves in a way? And then with music, you know, our brainwaves kind of can become, you know, synchronized with certain beats and things like that. Is that a a part of it? Um, It could be. So with with Jackson Pollock's paintings, what this, um, oh, I'm trying to think of his name. Anyway, he um, he's a physicist and he suspected that there was something interesting in particular about Jackson Pollock's drip paintings. And he um, measured them with a computer software and found that they were fractal patterns. They're the fractal range, it's called, because fractals can be like very tight and self-repeating and a small tight scale, or they can be like looser and grander. And the range that Jackson Pollock's paintings are fractal is the same range as other like so when you go to a beach and there's low tide and the the water has left that interesting pattern of sand hills and they're they're all repetitious right and they have that same pattern like hundreds Mm -hmm. and hundreds of little sand patterns those that fractal range is the same range as the drip paintings so it has the same effect on our brain waves yes that range has the effect of being calming, almost like mesmerizing. And they think that's why his drip paintings got so famous. Like people would go to an art museum and stand there and stare at them for 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. Like that, that classic cliche of, you know, somebody staring at a piece of art and you're like, but it's just, you know, it's just paint like thrown on a canvas randomly, you know, but it did wind up having the same effect on people's psychology as calming patterns in nature. It's wild. He was doing that subconsciously. Some of these paintings were enormous. Yes. And he was painting them and not seeing the entire painting at one time while he was doing that, and yet was able to, you know, um, stitch it all together into a cohesive form. Oh, my God. Not to mention, he was a horrible alcoholic, and he's doing a lot of his (laughs) creative work in a blacked out stupor. Yeah. I mean, it's totally totally weird it's almost like he's from another dimension you know yeah. it's it's bizarre but i feel like something like that must be going on with music and um maybe it's true of other bands too but i feel like it's certainly true with rush fans and rush like there's 
there's a lot, a lot of other music that I like, but there's absolutely no one like Rush. That's right. We were talking, uh, I think in the previous, one of our previous podcasts about how Rush uses a lot of weird time signatures in their songs, but mm-hmm. you never really notice them. Mm. Um, unlike other prog bands where you can just like, oh my God, what, you know, what is this in? Because they change it and it's kind of re- really in your face. But yes. within a song, Rush will change a time signature and it just goes right over your head. You can feel yes. that there's something different, but you certainly aren't jarred by it. And that's like one of the things that they can do emotionally is put something into a, a, a weird time. Yes. And you, another thing they do too, which I've heard a really interesting psychological explanation of, um, is the dramatic pauses in music. Yeah. They, I, and I can't remember the details of the research, but when the music, it, it's super loud and com- complicated and complex, and then it comes to a complete stop, and yeah. then it starts again, and it com- comes to a complete stop, and it starts again. That does something to us emotionally that's very powerful, and Rush does that a lot, they of do. course, in their music. I, yeah. tw- like in, I was just thinking of 2112 toward the end. Right. Or just kind of, you know, at the end when he's in despair. Yeah. And he's just singing and everything just goes bump. And then it crashes right back in again. Or or that point right. in Cinderella Man we were just talking about oh, uh, yeah. last week mm-hmm. where it just stops. Yes. And it's just great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yep. Then you got to try to, you know, come back in on the beat. It's not always the easiest thing with Rush. <laughs> no, but they do it flawlessly. Yeah. And it's, it's also a good, um, it's that pivotal point. So... One song is that I communicated with you earlier that I also love is the Necromancer. And the Necromancer does that wonderfully where it's like super dark, loud, like nasty music. And then it stops when the Necromancer, you know, soars away in the night and all yeah. that. The The happy music is a complete abrupt change yeah. from the scary, dark, you know, loud music that came before it. And it's, it's, it tells its own story, the music, even without the lyrics. It's amazing. Yeah. So Liz, getting back to Neil Peart, Jerry and I had been talking when Neil passed about how it felt like we lost a family member when Neil passed. Well, why do you think that is? Why do you think Rush fans feel like we lost a member of the family? Yeah, it does. It totally does feel that way. And I, um, of course, never met him personally. And I only saw them live on stage maybe half a dozen times, regrettably. But I think when you listen to somebody's words, read or listen, and of course his drumming too, not to take away from the music, music, but um, when you listen to his words and think about them for decades and decades, it does become a part of you. Like it's you, you've like digested it. You know, it's it's in your being so much that. When he died, I think we all felt like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that person is now absent from my life and from the planet. Like, that's just, it's a major, major loss. And one of the people who emailed me privately said something like, um, he felt like a part of his brain had been removed. Mm. And I thought that was interesting uh, because I kind of feel that way too. It's like, there's... his words have meant so much to me and have impressed me so much for decades that 
it's a it's a major loss. You feel like there's they're always going to be there, but there's not going to be any more in the pipeline. Right. You know. Yeah. There's yeah. some there's something about Neil. I mean, the history of rock and roll, for me, someone like Neil being able to pull all of these different ideas into all of these different songs is just um, a marvel. He's one of the best. Yeah, he is. <clears throat> he is the best. I mean, I remember early, early on when I was discovering Rush and um, put two and two together that he is an amazing drummer, but he's also the one writing all the lyrics. And I just remember being like, wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard uh, Free Will, I'm like, what? I'm like listening to the lyrics. I'm like, what is this song about? Like, this song is about, <laughs> is about free will versus determinism? Like, what is going on in this crazy song? And right. it's just so catchy. You know, yes. you, you want to sing along with it. I mean, who... Yeah. You you couldn't pitch that idea to somebody, you know, like, hey, no. let's uh, let's write a song about free will. And they'd be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then have it be one <laughs> of the... nerd. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I guess. But have oh. it be uh, such an amazing song. I mean, he, he couldn't have had better partners than Getty and Alex, too, to exactly. all three of them just working together. And that one worked for the radio, right? Everyone oh, knows totally. that song. Right. And Another blew up. miracle. Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes when I read their lyrics, I can't even believe that they were able to, you know, sing song them. Like, right, <laughs> right. Like, one, one of my favorite songs of theirs is Camera Eye. I love Camera Eye. And I think it, some of the words in there, you're just like, it's like my feet catch a purposeful stride. It's yeah. like, how did, you, how did you sing that into our, a rock song? You know right. what I mean? That's Getty. Yeah, Steve and I were talking about when we were doing, um, Beneath, Between, Behind, so yeah. many lyrics in that song. We were wondering what yeah. Getty thought when he's I like, know. okay, it, you know, Neil's like, yeah, hey, I've got these lyrics for you. And he's like, uh, okay, there's like 400 lyrics. <laughs> there's like 400 <laughs> words in this song. How fast am I going to sing these? And it's a relatively short song right. for them, too. I know. Liz, you, you wrapped up your Psychology Today article by saying uh, you're inspired to integrate your, into your own life Neil's insight to be sensitive, open, and strong. What did you mean by that? God, I love that song too. Natural science. That uh, natural science is one of my all-time favorite songs. I love that song. Yeah, it's a great song. Um, I think those are really those are really really good um, recommendations. So being sensitive, you know, to not only the world around you but other people's needs and other people's emotions, you know. Um, coincidentally, I'm reading a book right now called The Sociopath Next Door, famous book about sociopaths. I I read that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great book. And, um, you know, even if we're not only 4% of the population, she says, are sociopaths, but even if you're not sociopaths, you know, people are just really kind of just involved in their own BS and head down and, you know, not, not paying attention and stuff. And, being sensitive, I think, means, you know, just being aware of what are other people going through, what are other people caring about and wondering about, um, and being open is, you know, open-minded, being open to new ideas and new connections and people, and strong, you know, and I think having the strength to go through life, the challenges, having resilience, I mean, it's, they're such good messages, and I'd say all of those are kind of part and parcel of having integrity right or just being 
a person of integrity, you know, doing what you know you need to do, but also respecting others in the meantime and, you know, having resilience and going on. I think um, I just love those words, being sensitive, open and strong. Well, we were so happy to have a person of integrity on the Rush Fancast today. <laughs> For once. For once. Liz Swan <laughs> is a writer and philosopher and lecturer who teaches writing at the University of Colorado Boulder. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. So, Jer, uh, that was an incredible conversation. It was. I mean... She is way smarter than you and me combined. <laughs> That's very true. That's very That's, true. Is that saying much, you and me combined? I think I it is. We're, we're pretty smart. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, but she she's great. And yeah. uh, I, I agree. I, I think we should we should have her back on again. You mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we should have her back on. She was great. Yeah. So I when agree. we have philosophical questions about future things we're going to be discussing, we could just give Liz a ring. Yep. She can answer them. Yeah. Much better than we could. Right. Ask That's for the, sure. Ask the philosopher. Be a new, new segment. <laughs> That's great. You know, we should do that. Maybe we should do that. Yeah, people should send in their philosophical questions. Send in your philosophical questions. This is a great idea. Yeah. Send it in and we'll it. compile them. No, seriously. Yeah. And then next time we'll have Liz on and ask the questions that the fans ask. Yeah. So definitely send something in. Yeah. Email us at the rushcast at gmail.com. It's a great idea. So we just spur of the moment came up with right that. off the, right off the dome, right off the dome. See, we're smarter than we give ourselves credit for, <laughs> which makes Liz even smarter because she's smarter than both of us combined. combined. Right. Very true. And this episode today is a great jumping off point to what we're going to do next week on the Rush Fancast. That's right. Very excited. Hemispheres is what we're going to be talking yeah. about. Again. Now you thought you thought that we stopped kidding around when we did a farewell to Kings. <laughs> now we're going to do hemispheres. Yeah. Now we're real I mean Now we're dour. Right. We're dour. <laughs> we're not we're not joking. I mean, seriously. Yeah. No more laughing. This hemispheres. Is, this is serious stuff. Yeah, serious business. I mean, Liz based her whole career <laughs> on hemispheres. Yeah, really? really. Think about the gravity of that. Yeah. We've got a lot, a lot. Is that a pun about- Gravity? About a Cygnus <laughs> X1, the part one, whatever. <laughs> Just the, well, the thing is, I mean, after talking to Liz now, though, are we qualified to talk about hemispheres, really? No. But no? I, but I we're going to do it anyway. I have to break it to you, Steve. We haven't been qualified to talk about <laughs> anything that we've talked about so far, so it really shouldn't stop us. I guess not. You can follow us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram the RushCast, as we just mentioned. The email is RushCast at gmail.com. Send us those philosophy questions. We want to hear them. Yeah. And we'll use them. We will. And until next time, Jer, I hope, I hope... Liz would be very disappointed if you didn't have a quote for me today. Oh, no, I do. Oh, and good. it's from Hemispheres. Perfect. Let the truth of love be lighted. Let the love of truth shine clear. Sensibility armed with sense and liberty, with the heart and mind united in a single perfect sphere. Wow. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. Take it easy. Bye. Bye.